as Dennis aged, his thrill to hunt seemed to show a weakness. But he wasn't going to let another six-year dry spell keep him from experiencing the relief he desired. Slowly, the Ghostbusters that Lemonian had so much hope in started being reassigned to other cases. Many of them feeling like they had failed, but none of them giving up on catching BTK. A behavioral profile was used to try and narrow down suspects, but it was spotty at best. Dennis was a normal guy living a normal life. He had a wife and two kids. He attended church and worked within his community. Marine Hedge's murder, his neighbor just a few doors down, had yet to be solved, and there wasn't a mention of the acronym BTK. List of employees and students did no good. Little did they realize their killer's name only showed up in one possible list, but due to him being an upstanding citizen, no one looked at him twice. Every time investigators thought they had break, Dennis would slip through their fingers once again. Whether it's fate, luck, or pure overlooking Dennis's reign, still had a decade and a half before anyone would know what they were all dying to find out. Who was BTK? Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we will look at the last two victims of the killer known as BTK. Whether he knew that they would be or not, Dennis Rader's quest for relief was going to end, but the reign of terror was far from over. Police couldn't tie him to any of the crimes, yet. And thanks to an outward persona that he had developed, no one thought to take a second look in his direction. Had investigators crossed all their T's and dotted those I's, Dennis Rader might have been caught before the lives of a young mother and a devoted grandmother was taken for nothing more than pleasure. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of sexual fantasies, perversions, torture, murder, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. How are you tonight? Tonight, we got a little bit of house cleaning before we get started. If you are not yet, please go follow the True Crime Librarian on Facebook and Instagram so you never miss a case or an update from the librarian. If you're joining me on my YouTube page, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and ring that notification bell so you never miss an upload. The website is up and running, so don't forget to head over there and take a look around at www.thetruecrimelibrarian.com. Last but not least, let me show some true crime nerd love to a few lucky listeners. Lucky Freya Lightly, Blanca Gonzalez, Nicole Wiles, 
and Joker Wonder Woman. If you'd like to make it on the true crime nerd list, all you have to do is review the show or post a recommendation on Facebook or Instagram so that other nerds like yourself can find the librarian and join in on the true crime fun. Don't forget to use the hashtag the true crime librarian when you are posting your recommendation or review. Now let's get on to why you're all here tonight, and that is the true crime. Last week, we left off with Dennis and Maureen Hedge. Maureen Hedge and Anna Williams, Anna Williams managed to escape BTK, but both of them women provided something new for the case. It was an ever-changing victimology. Before, Dennis had prided himself in women that were young adult, you know, 21-ish into their early adult lives around 30, 34. But these two women jumped. They went into their 50s and 60s. And this is not something that was usual for him. Like I said before, his women, he liked them a little younger. However, Dennis was aging. Maybe was his victimology changing as he grew? Possibly. But what did come of all that is we noticed that he started hunting in his very own neighborhood. Marine Hedge lived just houses down from him, and the challenge, it was something Dennis wanted and succeeded with. Marine's murder had gone unsolved. The case is cold, and Dennis Rader was not looked at twice. Now, we're in the years of 1986, just a year after Marine's murder. Dennis was just, he was not about to let another multi-year dry spell keep him from getting what he desired most. And so he was in that to prevent this. He was looking every time he was out. He used ADT and the fact that he was in people's homes installing these security systems in order to keep people like Dennis Rader out, he was able to scout people out. Who were the women who lived alone? Who were the women who stayed home during the day while their husbands were out working? Were their children involved? You know, because he learned with Shirley Vianne, mm, don't really want to have to handle the children unless I have time to take care of them as well like he did with the Oteros. But Dennis just stumbled across a beautiful, blonde, young mother. Vicky, girl, we're going with it. I'm sorry to Bill and Stephanie and Brandon. I am not meaning to butcher the name. Vicky was young. She was only 28 years old. She had 10-year-old Stephanie and 2-year-old Brandon. Bill, he was the breadwinner of the home, but Vicky, she would pick up babysitting because those who knew Vicky said she had this very motherly instinct, not even seeing her raise her voice when she had the children testing her patients. Vicky was calm. She volunteered in the daycare at church. 
she was running a, a small daycare out of her home because she was home with Brandon, who was only two years old. She picked up babysitting for her friend, Wendy Jones, and her newborn son and two-year-old daughter. Now, Stephanie, she's old enough to be in school, but Vicki stayed home. And Bill, at one point, was working very close to home. There was an apartment complex, not just like across the street and to just a little over. Bill was the maintenance man for the complex for a while. So he was able to work and see the front of his home all at one time. And this was great. It worked out well for the small family. But now Bill had left that job to start working as a house painter. And on the morning of September 16th, 1986, Bill got ready for work as Vicki got ready for her day with the children. Stephanie was off to school and Bill went ahead and let Vicki know he would be home early for lunch that day because the job he needed to do was to paint a coat, let it dry, come back and paint another coat. It provided him with about enough time that it would be very close to lunchtime, but earlier than normal when he came home. So he let Vicki know, you know, I'm coming home early for lunch. You know, it's 1986. A sandwich would be great, you know, kind of thing. But that's who Vicki was. She was a mom. She was a wife. She loved being this role in her family. And so it didn't bother her that her husband would come home and she and he kind of got to a point where he expected his lunch when he let her know he was coming. You know, I kind of would like something to eat when I get there. And Vicky was okay with that. There is no wrong in the way she acted. That is who she was. That's who her personality was. And that's where she thrived. So, you know, no shame in the fact that she was a stay-at-home mom and a great homemaker. Now, let's talk about Officer Kenny Landwehr. We talked about him last week. He was part of that Ghostbusters group that uh, Lemonian had built up in hopes with the fresh eyes they could find a break in the BTK case and close out some of these murders that had been just completely baffling detectives and the, the chief of police. He was done. Well, he brought in this young officer new to the force named Kenny Landwehr, and he provided some great eyes for this case. And believe it or not, he was just a teenager when the Oteros were killed and he lived not far from them. So Kenny has been familiar with BTK from a young, young age in life. And he is going to become a major name the further we go into this case. But as it pertains to Vicki Wurgle, he was living in the very complex that Bill had been the maintenance man for. Kenny was single, living the bachelor life, and his the way his apartment faced, had he gone out onto the balcony, he could see the shopping center parking lot that was just right there. Then across the street, well, that's where Bill and Vicky lived. He could see their home from where he stood on his balcony. And that day, he just happened to be at home sleeping. He had worked a shift before and was tired. Well, Bill went off to work and Vicki and Brandon stayed home. Now, Dennis had found Miss Vicki and he, he watched her for a while and he knew her husband's routine. And this morning, 
it was it. He had it. He he thought, you know, Bill's off to work. I'm going to have some time with her. So what what ruse? Because that's what Dennis does. He has some ruse to get his feet in the door. And then from there, he maintains control the best he can. So this way came up with. He took a yellow hard hat from ADT. He cut out the Southwestern Bell logo. And he kind of, from what I understand, he just kind of slapped it on that hard hat with a little bit of glue. And was like, hey, looks official to me. Gonna print off this partial manual of how to work on phone lines, put it in my briefcase, throw in some rope, a gun. Let me let me try out these new leather shoelaces because they may be actually sturdier than nylon. Throw some of that in there. And then he had this like receiver attached to a cord with some alligator clips. Okay. And I'm not really sure how he came up with this rig, but he did. And he was confident in the fact that it would sell him as a telephone repair guy. So that morning he parks in that shopping center and had Kenny been out that morning, he could have been out on his balcony, looked down and watched Dennis exit his ADT company van, cross the street and head towards Vicky's home. However, he didn't go straight to her door. Not just yet. Instead, he went next door to the neighbors and he knocked on the door. This is all part of his ruse, part of his ploy to sell the story that he is some phone repairman. So he knocks on the door and he tells the couple inside who are elderly, you know, there's been some problems reported with the phone lines. I need to come into your home and check your line. And they let him in and Dennis goes in, pretends to be checking their line with this rig. He looks all professional, right? So once he's done, he, you know, thanks the couple and he leaves their home and immediately he heads toward the neighbor's house, which just happens to be Vicky Wurgles. He knocks on the door and he can hear from inside Vicky playing the piano. And he had caught on to this while stalking her that Vicky loved to play the piano. Therefore, this was called Project Piano. So once the music stops playing after he knocks, he just waits for a moment when Vicky opens the door. And there's Vicky standing in front of him and Brandon is in the floor playing. He's two. And Dennis tells her, you know, I'm with Southwestern Bell. I'm here to check your phone lines. There's been some report of issues and I just want to see if it's coming from within your home. And Vicky doesn't understand this. She, you know, why can't you check the phone line outside of the home? And Dennis tries to come up with this story that can get him in the door. And eventually, Vicky buckles and she lets Dennis in. And this is getting very close to the 11 o'clock hour, which is about the time that they suspected that Bill was going to start heading to the house for lunch. And so it's just Vicky, Dennis, and Brandon in the home. Dennis heads over to the dining room where the phone jack is, uh, and he connects his little alligator clip with his receiver and pretends to check this line. And then he gets done, he stands up, and he's like, all good, thank you. He puts his rig in his briefcase, and then he pulls out his twenty-two. He points the twenty-two at Vicky, who is 
immediately crying and terrified and tells her we're going to the bedroom and and Vicky is like well what about my son he's like I don't care about your son we're going to the bedroom and before he can usher her down the hallway he stops pulls her car keys and her driver's license from her purse then continues to push her down the hall to the master bedroom now, once they are in the bedroom, Vicky speaks up and she tells Dennis, you know, my husband's coming home for lunch early today. He'll be here any minute. And Dennis, he knows there's a husband. He's seen Bill, but he's hoping it won't be too soon because he's got some things planned for Vicky. So he makes Vicky lay down on their waterbed, on building Vicky's waterbed, and he ties her hands and her feet together with this leather shoestring. And as he's doing so, Vicky is praying, praying out loud. He can hear the words. She's crying. She's distraught. And she's not really comprehending what the hell is going on here. Once Dennis backs away to admire his binding skills, she jerks her hands just enough and the shoestring breaks. And this sends Dennis and her into a little bit of a a little bit of a fight. Vicky's not going down without one. And she ends up scratching Dennis's neck. And we know as junkies, as nerds, what this means. There's, you know, there's skin cells, there's DNA underneath her fingernails at this point. Dennis rears back, punches her in the head, and this kind of slows Vicky down to the point that he can pull out a nylon from her drawer and tie her hands back together. Now, once he has her tied back down, he reaches for another nylon, and by this point, the two have rolled off the waterbed and now are in between the bed and the TV cabinet. And he reaches back into that same drawer, pulls out another nylon, and goes to strangle Vicky. And he pulls hard. At first, he had this leather shoestring rigged up with a couple knots on each end to give him a grip. He was thinking this leather was going to be sturdier, be more, be better as far as his tools of the trade went. However, he learned very quickly Getting a grasp on that was extremely difficult when you're in the throes of a wild victim. So the nylon, tried and true. He's used it before and he's going to continue to use it. He pulled hard and he didn't let up until Vicky stopped moving and stopped breathing. Now, in the back of Dennis's mind... We know this from the phone call that happened at the Shirley Vianne house from, you know, just he does not like to have to deal with a change in his plan because that means he's not going to get the time that he desires with each victim in order to get the best relief he can get, right? Okay, so in the back of his head, he hears Vicky telling him, my husband's coming home early for lunch and Dennis realizes it could be any moment and he doesn't have a whole lot of time. So quickly he, he pulls down Vicky's top, exposing some of her breast 
and he takes a few photos. He poses her just a couple of times, clicks some few photos, and decides he's going. So he grabs up all of his stuff, and Brandon is in the living room crying. He closes the door behind him, climbs behind the steering wheel of Vicky's car, and pulls out of the driveway. Bill is on his way home at this point, and the two cross paths. Bill sees a car that looks just like Vicky's Monte Carlo, and he swears it's his wife until they pass, and he sees that there is a tall male behind the wheel. So then he he's, you know, well, not my wife, but hey, that looked really much like her car, right? He pulls onto their street and into their driveway, and he realizes Vicky's car is gone. This is not normal considering the fact that he told her he was coming home early for lunch today. So is he aggravated? No, not really. I mean, he's capable of going in there and making himself a sandwich. So he gets out of the car, climbs the steps, and enters his home. Inside is Brandon in the living room, and he's crying. And Bill is mad, you know, because Vicky's not here, but his son is here. What went through her head that said it was okay to leave their two-year-old son at home? And so he does like a quick glance around the home, looks in all the bedrooms, doesn't see his wife, comes back into the living room and consoles his two-year-old son and makes himself a sandwich. And he's thinking, you know, I'm going to let her have it when she gets home. So he waits around. He waits around for 45 minutes for his wife to come home. And at this point, he realizes, I need to get back to work. I can't sit here and hold our son all day until she decides to come home. So he decides he's going to look through the home one more time. Before, he just kind of stood in the doorway of the master bedroom and looked in the room. When doing so, you could not see Vicky's body because it was between the bed and the TV cabinet furthest from the door. He couldn't see her body. But the second go around, 45 minutes later, he steps in enough to catch glimpse that she's on the floor and she's not moving. He immediately picks up the phone and calls 911 and he tells dispatchers, I think someone has killed my wife. Dennis has dumped her car next to the meat market in the shopping center across from the workers home. He drove it around getting rid of evidence at different spots except for those prized Polaroids. In the trash can just outside the Brahms ice cream store, he dumped his briefcase. In the trash can by a muffler shop, he put his hard hat and the makeshift Southwestern Bell logo was pulled away and he was going to keep that as a souvenir along with her driver's license. While walking to his van, which was, like I said, parked right there across the street, he could hear the sirens as he climbed in and pulled away. Firefighters Ronald Evan and, and Lieutenant Mark Haynes were first on scene and found Bill on the porch and he's punching the wall repeatedly, repeating, if I could have been here five minutes earlier, I could have done something. Bill was definitely mad that he was not able to save his wife and he was mad at himself that it took him 45 minutes sitting in the same home before he found her. Vicky's body was found by the firefighters and there was a pocket knife very close to her head. 
Investigators will later learn that Bill used that pocket knife to cut away the leather shoelaces and nylons tied around his wife's body. When EMTs arrive on scene, firefighters have moved Vicki into the dining room and they are performing CPR on her in an effort to save her. Nita Sawyer noticed that Vicky's face was streaked with color, and this is a, this is a result of strangulation. If you've ever noticed when somebody, I don't know, I mean, I've never actually been there when somebody was strangled, but if you ever notice, their face gets really red, like when they hold their breath. So I can only imagine that's the way this is going to be during a strangulation. The face gets really red. The eyes start to bulge. There's a desperate need for oxygen to the brain and the fight or flight response is taking over. Now, the way that I'm understanding the this streak in color is only partial amounts of blood actually come away from the surface of the skin after death has occurred by strangulation. So it leaves a very streaky appearance. There is a ligature mark around her throat. The leather that tied her hands behind her back had dug so deep into her skin it left these abrasions. In the living room there are toys scattered everywhere as Brandon had had them out for that day's playing. Now this is this is TV news crews. They were there. They were on scene. When the call came in, they were able to intercept and head there as well. And they are currently filming first responders trying everything they know and everything they've been trained to do in order to bring her back. But in reality, we all know that generally death or the death call cannot be called by first responders. So they have got to act like that person is alive the entire time to the hospital, wherein the ER doctor will call time of death. Now, they'll call in over the radio and let them know they've got one dead on arrival. But they're, I mean, I, from what I gathered, they're not allowed to call time of death. When Vicky's body was brought into Riverside's hospital emergency room, they pronounced her dead. And at this point... Investigators, they're confident that they have their perp, their perpetrator, and it's Bill, Vicky's husband. We know, because we, if you don't follow a, a lot of true crime cases, you really should being a true crime nerd. But if you did not know, generally, when a spouse ends up dead and the other spouse is, is home, I mean, suspicions jump automatically to them. Okay, it doesn't matter if the husband's killed and the wife's alive or the wife's killed and the husband's alive. They always suspect the spouse first because generally, just rule of thumb, it's a crime of passion and the spouse had lost their temper or just couldn't blacked out from anger, from rage and didn't realize what they had done until it was already done. So they thought, you know, we've got him. Bill, Bill's here. He killed his wife. Now we got to figure out why. So they take Bill on down to the police station and the questions start flying from investigators. You know, what time did you say you saw that Monte Carlo? Bill answers. He's like, how long did you sit in your house before you realized your wife was in the bedroom? 
Bill answers 45 minutes and they're like, 45 minutes? What took you so long? They are insinuating with every question, we're not buying it. We're not eating this. Feed us something differently. Okay, so these questions continue to grow. Investigators and continue to become angry. They're mad because Bill's not budging. He's not stepping away from the story. It is the same story over and over. And for Bill, that is perfect because when he can tell that same story over and over and over, it's because it's not a lie that he's rehearsed. It's the truth. But, you know, husbands always do it. So they start asking questions like, were you having an affair? Was Vicky having an affair? What were you two arguing about that morning? There was never a mention from Bill that the two had an argument. However, once this question comes up in investigation, it's not a matter of whether you had an argument. It's a matter of what were you arguing about so that they don't have an opportunity to deny any argument at all. No, they're saying you argued. Now we want to know why. But Bill is like, we didn't have an argument. I told her I was coming home early from lunch because I had to do this job that required me to paint, let it dry, come back, add another coat. And it just happened to be a perfect opportunity to go to lunch. They're not buying this. They're not buying this at all. So then they're like, hey, Bill, you want to take a lie detector test? And Bill's like, yeah, I'll take one. Now, time out. If you do not know what a lie detector machine does, it, it monitors the, the person's heart rate. It monitors their blood pressure. And there it monitors like perspiration and respirations and things like that. Nowadays, the newer versions, the newer models, they have a mat that the person answering questions set on. This mat is motion censored. So if there's any sort of muscle flinch, any sort of just tense clenching or shifting or bouncing your leg, whatever that the, the questionnaire cannot see them do, this mat's picking it up. However, when Bill took his lie detector test, he didn't have the mat. He, you know, he's model one. Okay, so it's, it's very there. But if you don't know this, they are asking him to do this on the day that he found his wife dead. They're saying, hey, you want to take a lie detector test? And Bill's okay with this. He's like, heck yeah, I do, because I'm not lying. However, we know now that's a no-no. Mm -mm. Nope. You cannot administer a lie detector test to a family member or spouse in the day that they find out that their loved one has been killed. You will get their emotions registering as a lie, therefore making it unreliable. You know, nine times out of 10, 9.9999 times out of 10, the results of a lie detector test are inadmissible in court because it is known that lie detector tests are very unreliable. So if you're like me, I'm a very nervous person. You say my middle name, I'm going to sweat bullets and try to figure out why you're yelling at me. Okay. If you hook me up to a lie detector test and ask me if I shot Kennedy, I'm going to fail that thing. I wasn't even alive. My mama wasn't even alive when Kennedy was shot. But if you ask me if I did it, oh, I'm going to fail that test. 
because that's who I am. So if you have a person who has anxiety, who has this this fear of being in trouble by anyone of authority, um, hello, the librarian here, they are not going to do well on that lie detector test, okay? Just know that. So for any of you that are like, give them a lie detector test. No, it's not exactly the most reliable source to investigators. Nine times out of ten when they're using one, it's because they're going to point the perpetrator in the direction of, of a confession, especially if they know it. it. It needs to be. Look back at Chris Watts. They gave him a lie detector test. Three questions. He failed every single one of them. But they already knew at that point that he was guilty and he just needed to come clean as to what happened. And, and by giving him that lie detector test, even though they knew it couldn't go into court, it helped them pull a confession, not coercion, not to be confused, okay? But with Bill, he took two and he failed both, okay? So investigators, they start grilling down hard. They're playing the bad cop, like the over-the-top, extreme, loud, screaming questions at this very innocent man who, who could have saved his wife, he felt like, if he had been home just a little bit sooner. So they're, they're screaming at him, asking him questions. Well, Bill's family is there. They're there at the PD. They're waiting for him to get done being interrogated. And they can hear some of these questions that are being asked. And they automatically are like, this is, no, this is, this is not, first of all, this is not who Bill is. Second of all, this is not what happened at all. He's only told you that 1,900 different ways and you aren't listening. So when Bill gets to come out and take a break and he talks to his family, they tell him immediately, you need to lawyer up. We're getting you a lawyer. And, and Bill, you know, he he's hesitant at first because the moment that investigators see somebody lawyer up, they automatically think that they're guilty. That's not necessarily true. If you're pointing a finger at somebody who is innocent, but you, for whatever reason, think they're guilty, Hiring a lawyer will only get you off their back long enough for them to catch their breath. And that's what Bill was doing at the advice of his family. He needed to catch his breath after sitting there being interrogated by these bad cops and asking questions on, on you know, why'd you kill your wife? And he's like, I didn't kill my wife. I wasn't even there. But they don't believe him. So in the end, he lawyers up, which proves to be very smart on Bill's half because he can leave the police station as he was never under arrest when he was brought to the police station and he can leave. He leaves, goes, gets a lawyer and detectives never charge him with the murder of his wife. Yet he also doesn't get to live life like he thought he was going to. His wife's gone. He's got, you know, he's a single father of two children. Things aren't going the way he had planned. And losing his wife in the way that he did had to play a serious toll on him mentally and physically. Vicki, during her autopsy, the medical examiner notes a couple things that are worth sharing. Vicki was strangled so hard that there was internal bleeding in her throat. 
So, you know, with strangulation, uh, there's not a whole lot of blood, right? I mean, we're going to get stuff up underneath the skin because bruising is going to occur. Whelps are going to occur. The, the streaking color in the face will occur. But Dennis was so angry during their fight because she was fighting back and he, you know, he was having to subdue her. And in his mind, that just meant he didn't have control of the situation. Okay. So that's the way Dennis's brain works. So in his mind, he thinks he has no control. This is pissing him off. So he pulls harder on the nylon around Vicky's throat. And it pulls so hard that not only is there these marks around her throat, this bruising, this, this swelling, that inside he lacerated things to cause bleeding. It was a violent strangulation. He, it's noted that Vicky had been beaten prior to death. She had scrapes to her right ear, her cheek, and along the jawline. There was a gash in her left hand and a knuckle on that hand was swollen, which proves that she, she was hitting him just as hard as she could. And both of these injuries to her hand and face had occurred prior to death because the inflammation response to the body to an injury was in effect when death occurred. There was also skin under her fingernails and we talked about this during during the argument during the fighting that meant we have the attacker's dna skin cells are very rich with dna we know this we've only watched id channel like a million times right so we know we've got some dna however we're in 1986 we're still one year away from the first successful conviction with DNA, okay? So we're still in the very early stages of typing DNA. So swabs are taking over fingernails, but there's never anything to cross match it to. And due to the fact that samples need to be so large in the early to mid 1980s, getting DNA from that little bitty piece underneath her fingernail was not gonna happen, not yet. There was no evidence to her genital area of sexual assault. However, the medical examiner did go ahead and do a swab of her vaginal walls in case there had been any male secretions left, which would also provide DNA, but possibly not a large enough sample to be testing it in 1986. 1988. Dennis Rader is asked to leave or resign his position with ADT. Now, why are we talking about this? Because ADT was his way to hunt, his way to stock, his way to evaluate a person on whether or not they were going to make a great victim of his. Well, Dennis lost his job. Well, he was asked to resign his position. It is not noted as to why he was asked, but co-workers of him speculate to the fact that he was a control freak. He was anal retentive. He was hard to work with. You know, it just, he wasn't a pleasant person in his job. And it just, it got to a point where his supervisors had had enough of the 
reports coming in saying he was he was hard to work with that they were like all right don't make us fire you 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 kind of need to give us your tenure to resignation and so he did dennis was without a job yet again after dennis was asked to resign from his position in adt he found another job that provided him with the same ability that his job at ADT did when it came to hunting. He landed a job with Uncle Sam and the census. It was time to get a head count of who lived in the great country, United States of America. And while doing so, he stumbled upon a new victim, Dolores Davis. At first, he thought she was a he. She had her hair cut short, but all rights to her she was a very beautiful woman so when he got a little bit closer he realized he is a she and she's got the same build as one of his previous victims marine hedge she was a very tiny petite little thing only standing about five foot three ish weighing 120 to 125 pounds dolores same build everything so dennis was ready like I said before, Vicky, he was determined he was not going to allow another dry spell to happen in the hunting or in the kill. He was dead on it. He found him somebody else. Nearly 17 years to the date of his very first killing with the Otero family, and he was ready to make another hit. Now, Dennis had prowled around Dolores' house because she lived not far to, from him at 6226 North Hillside, which is you know, a couple blocks maybe, if that. When you look it up on the map, it's really, it, it, she doesn't live very far. It's in his neighborhood. He's hunting within his own land yet again because he got away with it with Maureen. Why not try again and press our luck, right? So he's prowling around Dolores' home. This is late December, early January. Now, one night he is trying to get a peek inside of her window, trying to figure out her routine. And he gets up close enough that the cat that is laying inside of the window sees him and starts to bat at the, the, the glass trying to get him because it's startled. And Dennis is like, well, I should probably get out of here before that, you know, brings attention. And it does because Dolores gets up. And by the time she gets to the window, Dennis is gone. However, there in the very fresh snow that had been falling is a set of tracks. And initially, Dolores thought the tracks were to an animal. Man, she wasn't wrong. I mean, it is to an animal. It's just not to the four-legged animal that she thought it was. On January 18th, 1991, 17 years and three days past his anniversary of his very first kill with the Otero family, Dennis is ready to kill again. And he is just so lucky enough to have that perfect alibi that he had with Maureen Hedge pop up once again. It was time for the Scout Rendezvous. And so on January 18th, about mid-morning, early afternoon, Dennis heads out to the campsite. He wants to be the first one there because he has a plan. He's going to cover his tracks so that he can kill 
Dolores, or D, as most knew her, and nobody questioned where he went. So he begins to set up camp. And this is the day before the boys and the fathers are supposed to show up. So he gets about halfway through, looks around, decides, I'm far enough that they'll believe that we ran out of supplies and I had to go back and get some stuff. They'll never question it as long as I'm back before anybody starts showing up to camp. So Dennis has set up with the perfect alibi. He is putting it into play. It is going down just as he hoped it would. And so he heads out to his parents' house. And they're not too far from the campsite. And his parents just happened to be wintering in the south. So their home was empty, which gave Dennis a place to hang out, change into his hit clothes, prepare his hit kit, and get ready to go out and, and take his victim. That night, he drives a few blocks from his parents' house over to the Baptist Church in Park City. And because he is a scout leader and the scouts tend to meet at the church and he's a leader within the church. He has keys to the building. So he goes in. He's going to do what he did with Maureen Hetch with Dolores Davis. He's going to bring her body back to the church, take some photographs, have all night, play to his little heart's content and go on. So once he realizes that the church is ready to go, he leaves his car in the parking lot of the church, which to me is a risky move because everybody knows Dennis and his car that attend that church. So if anybody drove by, if it was me and nobody else is at church, but Dennis is there, I would be like, what is he doing? Yeah, but maybe because hindsight's twenty twenty, and I know exactly what he's capable of. But still, I mean, even around my town, if I see somebody I know and they're, I'm like, oh, I wonder what they're doing there. You know, it's just, maybe I'm just curi more curious than most people. I don't know. So anyways, he, he leaves his car at the church parking lot and he takes off because he can walk from where the church is to Dee's house. So he takes off through a frozen wheat field and then through a cemetery. And many speculate he, he might have stopped in that cemetery because it felt like home for him because he had this fantasy with dead bodies. I don't know. I don't know. Because at this point, they, they're not, he wants them fresh. He wants them a little warm. At this point, you know, these people are, there's no telling how long they've been in the ground. So I don't know if, if he felt serenity by, by being in the, you know, the cemetery. I don't know. I don't know. That's just speculation though. I probably shouldn't have opened my mouth. Anyway, so he makes his trek through the fields and through the cemetery to Dee's house. Now, we're it's January 19th, so it's Wichita, Kansas. They're known for not only the amount of tornadoes that touch down up there, but for the amount of snow that falls. Because here in Texas, I mean, they're just, you know, a state away. We don't get a whole lot of snow, and when we do, it's very fluky. It, it you know, we... There's not a lot of seasons where I'm at. It's either hot or hot or warm. You know, it's not, I don't get fall and spring and all that. However, Kansas is about a four hour drive from where I'm at, which tall sits about four and a half hours. So up there, 
when you're tracking through, when you're driving through Kansas, and if you happen to do so at the end of December, beginning of January, good luck. It's a lot of snow that you will encounter, ice. So it's cold. There, for Dennis to be walking this distance from the church to Dolores's home, it's cold out there. His thought was the the whole ruse of going to the bowling alley, getting pretending to get drunk, and then having to call a cab. That took too much time away from the time he could have spent with Maureen. So he's trying to save himself a little bit of time. Okay, well it's cold. That I mean, point taken, right? It's like a one and done kind of an argument. But he gets over to Dolores's house and gets to Dee's house and he looks through the window and he sees that she is up reading in bed. And it's our time frame's a little gray here because multiple, multiple resources they they talk on the murder of Dee Davis, but none of them have their crap together and have an actual time. And it's possibly because the only person we can count on for an actual time frame is Dennis Rader. And he may be holding on to that for his own enjoyment. I don't know. So anyways, we're here. It's about 10 o'clock at night. Dee is up reading. She's in bed, but she's reading. And Dennis needs to wait for her to go to sleep. Because the thing through his entire time prowling and, and stalking her is he learns that she locks her windows and locks her doors. This house is locked tight at night. She's not about to take chances at all. She's overly cautious. And people say that about her when it came to her children and grandchildren. She was very cautious with them. So Dennis is left sitting outside, shivering. It's freezing. And he's got to have his mind working to try and get himself into the home. He wants to do so without drawing any attention, but if any of you have ever been really cold, um, keeping a train of thought is not not a possible thing because the only thing you can think of is it's cold and I want to go inside. So he's waiting out D. Now, here's where the gray area lies. It's either 1030 or midnight. So in between those two times, D puts her book down, turns her lamp off, lays down, and and gets ready to go to sleep. And it's time for action. Dennis snips the phone line. And he starts looking for for a way in. And in her shed, he finds half of a cinder block. And he decides, I'm getting in one way or another. So he gets up to her sliding glass door. And he chunks this partial cinder block through the glass. And, and that's how he's going in. Because he's cold. And I can almost bet that he could not think of a better way to get into the home. Had the temperatures been a little bit more forgiving, he might have been able to come up with something a lot less. Um, I'm here. Check me out. Party. You know, very... Loud, proud introduction. So Dee jumps up once she hears the window break. And in her mind, she thinks somebody has ran into her home with their car. So she comes into the living room and Dennis is standing just inside the doorway. And he has a piece of pantyhose pulled down over his face. 
And Dee's like, did you hit my house with your car? What are you doing in here? You know, and Dennis, he's just standing there as Dee's rattling off these questions and demanding to know why he is in her home. And Dennis spouts off the same old, same old. He's a wanted man. He needs a car. He needs money. He needs food. And he needs to warm up. And he tells her, I'm, you know, I'm going to tie you up and leave you. I need to, I need to be inside. I need to get warm. This part, true, because again, the temperatures are hovering around 32 degrees this night. And Dee, she's not laying down easily. She tells Dennis straight up, get out of my house. No, this ain't happening. And, and Dennis, he has to kind of show some of his cards in order to, to gain control of the situation. He tells her, you know, I've got a gun and a knife and you can choose that or you can choose to cooperate. And D, she, she takes a moment to, to gather herself and she decides that she doesn't want the gun or knife. So she's going to cooperate, but not before she can rebuke back saying, Someone is coming over to see me in a little while. This is the second victim within a year to really screw up his timeline and limit the amount of time he gets to spend with his victims because somebody could potentially be coming. They could potentially be telling me the truth. And I don't know just yet whether someone's coming and do we take a chance on, on somebody coming in and walking in on me? While I'm trying to have a very private moment with this dead body. So in the back of Dennis's mind is Dee's, you know, comment that somebody's coming, coming to see her in a little while. It's midnight. After not getting to spend the time with Vicky that he thought he was going to get and to be in another situation where he might not get that release, he becomes a little chaotic in himself. He's angry that he is not going to get to do what he wanted, what he had planned. So we're going to move a little bit faster. So he takes Dee into her bedroom and he cuffs her hands behind her back and he ties her feet together with a pantyhose. And to, in order to calm her, in order to maintain control of the situation, Dennis takes off in the house and he starts opening cabinets and slamming things around in the kitchen to to simulate the fact that he's looking for, you know, money, for food, for items he can take with him to help him survive as a wanted person, you know, just to calm her and really try and get her to believe that nothing is going to harm her. She's just going to be tied up. So he, you know, in fashion of Dennis, he, he grabs her keys, he grabs her driver's license, and he goes back into the bedroom. Now, when he's back in the bedroom, he removes the cuffs from her hands and ties her hands with nylons. And he asks her again, he's like, is somebody really coming? And Dee says, yes, someone is coming. And so Dennis says, well, they'll find you. They'll find you and then you can call the police. I'm, I'm out of here. This is also just another line to calm her. And when he pulls the pantyhose up off his face, she knows she's not going to get out of this life. And she, you know, she's, she begins to beg Dennis not to kill her. She says, don't hurt me. I have kids. You know, please don't take, 
take that away from me, and Dennis tells her, too late. He wraps the nylon around her neck, and he pulls. Same M.O. As far as how he chooses to kill his victims, strangulation is a personal thing. And for Dennis, he needs that connection. He needs to have that personal tie together. And by being up close and listening to them struggle for breath, and up until the moment that, that their life is over, he, he feeds off that. There's never a doubt when you're looking at the BTK case that he is a very personable serial killer. He is not a shooter. He does not do a mass shooting. He doesn't do spree shooting. He doesn't do spree killing. He does not create chaos in his crimes because for him, it needs to be personal and it needs to be calm. And he needs to have control. It's the only way it's going to work for him. The only way he's going to get his relief. Dennis's plan was to have time with Dee. He, was, he wanted to be able to pose her, take pictures. You know, same MO, same, same fetish, same thing. But that little voice in the back of his head says, somebody's coming. And if somebody's coming, I don't have the time to do with her like I wanted to. So quickly, he goes back through, tosses the house again. He takes her jewelry box. He takes a camera. He takes a couple other trophies. And like I said before, her driver's license. Then he rolls Dee's body up in her bedding, just like he had done with Maureen. If you listen to last week's podcast and going through the crime scene of Maureen Hedge, you're going to see a lot of similarities. As I was preparing for tonight and, and generating notes, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, where did I put this? I've already said this. So I'm scrolling back through and trying to figure out where I'm duplicating notes. And it's not that I duplicated notes. It's that I'm looking at a almost a mirror image of, of Marine Hedge's crime and, and of the crime scene of, of Dennis's actions of things of that nature. So here we are again. He's rolling the body up into the bedding there from the home. He's stuffing her into the trunk of her own car. And Dee was meticulous when it came to her vehicle. She did not want it left outside to the elements of winter. So she parked it inside the garage. And then there was a door that went from the garage to the inside of the home. So Dennis carries, he, he's able to carry this body. He's able to move a body and nobody know what's going on. He loads Dee's body into the back of her 1985 Chevy Cavalier, closes the trunk. He leaves the door from the garage to the house just open barely, pulls out of the driveway, and he takes off into the night. Now, Dennis has always had a fetish, and his fantasy, fetish, fantasy, uh, was to to play with one of his victims inside of a barn or inside of a silo. Um, it's something he developed when he was a kid and, and he went to his grandparents' house because they had a farm and they had a barn. So in his mind, he pictures this perfect barn. And since we're out here driving around trying to make up a new plan on the, on the fly, wouldn't it be nice if he stumbled across one? So... 
He's got a couple of things he's got to take care of first. And one of them being the fact that he is driving the victim's car. So what does he do? He takes D and he heads towards the Kansas Department of Transportation Lake on at 45th and Hillside. Again, it's about a two minute drive from D's house, very centrally. And there at this transportation lake, there are two man-made lakes that are separated by the interstate. One is on the east side and one is on the west side. Dennis pulls down into the east side and he finds a spot that has some good brush, some good covering, and he tucks Dee's body there. Now, let's get rid of this car, right? You know, because we can't be found driving a dead person's car. So he heads back to Dee's house, pulls up in the driveway, gets out of the car. He wipes it down. No fingerprints. We can't leave behind stupid things. Like DNA, I know you're all shouting at me and DNA is a stupid thing to leave behind. But let me reiterate, 1991, we've, it's been four years since we saw our successful conviction with DNA. We'll cover this case because it's got to be interesting, right? We're still new. It still takes an abundance of DNA to run DNA, and then you've got to have something to compare it to. There's not a database out there. 23andMe, not even a twinkle in the creator's eye. It's not there. It's not feasible. It's not as easily accessible, okay? So while you're screaming at me, now you're screaming at me because I keep repeating myself. I love you all. Just remember that. But DNA, not something at the forefront of Dennis Rader's mind. And it won't be. And we'll talk about that later. So he wipes down the car. No fingerprints, right? And he gets it all clean. And he throws the keys on top of her roof. And he takes off down the same path back to the church. Because he's got to go get his car. There is no, none of this walking in the cold, okay? He's over it. And his feet are hurting. He's just, he's getting old. Is really what it's coming down to it. So he heads back to the church and he picks up his car. And now he's got to go back and claim his victim again. So he heads back to the transportation lake east side and he picks up Dee's body and he puts it in the car. And he's thinking in his head, maybe tonight I can play out that fantasy of having a victim in a barn. So now he has a barn in mind. He's out to find it. So he's driving the back roads. It's starting to snow very lightly at first. But as the storm worsens and the snow becomes a heavier fall, he decides he's running out of time. He's got to get back to camp before anybody shows up in the morning. It's only half-ass done. So he's got to work on that. He's got boys counting on him to for them to have a very fun and just memorable time at this camping trip. So he's out of time. Well, in his head, he's out of time. If with Moraine, he, I mean, he played with her up until daybreak. We're not there yet, but we are getting close apparently because he's starting to worry. So what does he got to do? He's got to find a place to put the body so that he can come back to it when he's got more time. Because he's not done. He didn't get any photographs. He didn't get to masturbate with Vicky Wargle. And he's backed up. 
He's got to get, he's got to have it. He's got to have that release. So he decides he's going to stash Dee's body under this bridge. And this bridge is found just before the county line. And it, in, in his head, it's perfect. Okay. So he pulls her out of his car, tucks her up underneath this bridge, and he heads back to camp. On January 19th of 1991, Dennis is back at camp before anybody realizes he was gone all night. Now, the boys are just now starting to arrive with their dads. So really, I mean, the only other people that would notice he was gone was anybody who came to help set up camp. But Dennis was gone for supplies, remember? Well, back at Dolores Davis's house, her friend Tom Ray has showed up. He had plans with Dee. They were going to meet up and he was going to wash her car for her because she didn't like to have all of that sand and salt rock all over the car. Because if you live in a winter state, you know the, the rust destruction that could happen, right? So she is, you know, I bought that. It's going to last me forever. I'm going to take care of it kind of person. Her friend Tom pulls up to the house. Very first thing he notices before he can even get out of the car is her car's in the driveway and not inside the garage. She did not like to leave her car out in the elements of winter and there was a snowstorm the night before. So Ray opens up the garage door and he sees that the, the door that goes from the garage to the home is open. This is also concerning. When he steps inside of Dee's house, he sees the phone line has been pulled from the wall. There's half of a cinder block. It's laying in the floor near the sliding glass door. He goes to her bedroom and he sees that her jewelry box is missing and there's no bedding on her bed. Tom leaves and he goes next door and he calls 911 and he tells them, you know, this is what I stumbled on at my friend's house. I have no idea what's going on, but I need somebody here. When Sedgwick County Sheriff's deputies arrive and they begin to look around Dee's house, one of the things they do find is the keys that are located on the roof. That evening, the evening of January 19, 1991, a man who's out walking his dog finds bedding about a quarter mile up the road from Dee's house in a culvert. As deputies are identifying this bedding as Dolores Davis's, Dennis is on his way back to claim the victim. He used the same ruse. He had a headache, but this time he was going to just run up the road to the convenience store and pick up some aspirin. So Dennis leaves camp, runs up the road, and he goes inside the convenience store, but instead of buying aspirin, he goes to the bathroom and he begins changing his clothes from his scout uniform into his hit clothes. When a Kansas Highway Patrol officer comes into the restroom and he sees Dennis, who's in the middle of changing, and he's like, what are you doing? And Dennis tells him, you know, I'm on the way to my scout camping trip. I'm just changing into my scout uniform. And the officer's like, well, when you get done, I need to talk to you. Apparently, there had been a phone call to the Highway Patrol to let them know there was a man changing inside of the restroom and he was acting a little suspicious. So Dennis gets done. He goes outside. He's talking with the patrol and they run his plates and they run his name to see if he has any active warrants. Of course, 
Dennis Rader avoids interference with the police like it's the plague and there's nothing there. And the officer, you know, have a good night. Sorry about taking up some time. Dennis like, no problem. See you around. And the two go their own ways. The only difference is Dennis in his car, he's got the hit kit. He's got some rope. He's got this plastic mask he's going to be using for photographs. He's got things in his car that would become very concerning to anybody in law enforcement had they searched his car. Again, Dennis slips right through their fingers. So Dennis, he makes his way back over to the bridge where he left Dee's body. It's about seven miles north of the culvert where deputies are currently recovering the bedding. And here's Dennis. He's with his dead body. When he gets down to her, he looks her over and he realizes the animals had gotten to her and started to gnaw away at on, on her flesh. And he was like, that's kind of creepy. But, you know, Dennis, you're creepy. You stuck her under a bridge. So he, he pulls out this mask. Now, you've seen it. If you've searched BTK at all and looked at any of the images, you've seen this mask. It is a plastic mask that is white on the inside, but on the outside, it's painted like a flesh color. It has red lips that have like a black ink line that runs through the middle to show, to simulate a separation. He's put eyebrows and eyelashes on it. It's a very creepy mask. But for Dennis, this is his way to pretty her up so that she looks desirable in the Polaroids. Now, at this point, death has taken its toll on Dee and her body. Her breasts have flattened, and Dennis is finding this very unattractive. However, this is all he has to work with, and he's going to make it work. Don't ask me why that happened. I don't know, and I don't plan to dig into it. He ties Dee's body up, manipulates it into different poses, takes his Polaroids, and once he's done, he decides, I'm going to leave that mask with her as a way to impress the police when they do find her body. And Dennis heads back to camp. I do not know if there was time for him to masturbate. If I'm looking at this timeline and considering that the attention is seven miles away at this culvert where the blankets have showed up, I would say he had plenty of time down there under a bridge like a troll to masturbate to Dee's body. And if he did, by the time she's found any evidence of, of ejaculation, it would be long gone. On February 1st of 1991, a boy that was walking down 117th in Meridian Street, discovers the remains of Dolores Davis, who had been missing since January 18, 1991. What had happened is his dog was walking without a leash, and he would get into things, the boy would whistle, the dog would come back. This time, the dog went under this bridge. When the boy whistled, the dog didn't come back. This concerned the boy, and he went to go investigate what the dog was getting into. And he found her body. The mask was found next to her body. And a Venetian blind cord was tied to the mask. And it is what held the mask on Dolores' body. 
No one knew what happened to Dee, and no one knew about Dennis's excursions when he left the camp. Two and two are not equaling four for investigators. They're not seeing that, you know, Dolores and Dennis or Dolores and BTK come together. They're not, they're not finding that. Yes, she was strangled, but we're looking at what, 13 days from the time she went missing to the time she was found. So there's sped up decomposition, even though it's cold it's not cold enough to help preserve the body and any evidence that could be with it. You've, you're left to the elements, you're left to, to wildlife. And again, it's been 13 days. You don't know what snow fell, melted, and washed away. Dennis Rader, he's nowhere on anybody's radar as being BTK's suspect or on that list. And... Tying D. Davis to BTK as a potential victim, they're nowhere in the same freaking room together. Police do not have it. They don't know what happened the night that D. went missing. They don't know. They can speculate on a time of death. Medical examiners, they go through extensive training on how to help determine that. But there's no guarantee considering they were left to elements because elements have been known to speed up and slow down the deterioration process of a dead body. So we're looking at a very troubling case without any leads to go on. You know, who, who could she have possibly angered enough to cause this? No one knows. No answers. Million questions, but there's no answers. And nobody even knows where to start to get the first answer. Because once you get the ball rolling, it plays well sometimes. But you've got to know where to start. And when you're looking at this chaotic scene, the house was completely ransacked. Her blankets were found seven miles away from where her body was found. They were found the day after she went missing. It's been 13 days since she went missing, and here she is dead, nude, under a bridge, and this really creepy-looking mask is with her. Dennis thought he was being cute by leaving the mask, and I don't know if maybe that was a way for him to sign off on this, on this crime as far as... BTK did it, but considering that he had never used a mask with one of his victims before, it's really hard to see that as a signature. The Venetian blind cord, if you've been following this case with me from day one, he used Venetian blind cord with the Otero family. As soon as I saw it, I, I, I could make that connection because it was one of the very first things that popped into my head. Because it's not very often, I don't know, I'm not an investigator or a detective or anybody, but I wouldn't suspect that it's very often that you see that very type of blind cord being used to kill a victim or it's there around the victim in a crime scene. I wouldn't say it's the go-to strangling method for killers, but I don't know that because, again... I'm just, you know, a lowly podcaster 
who is also a librarian by day. That's it. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm sure if I wanted to really get into the depths of this, I could find somebody willing to talk to me about it. However, I just, when I saw that, it just immediately popped up to the Oteros. Immediately, the name was in my head. And I would like to think that happened with investigators, but considering they don't tie her to BTK until much later, it didn't. It didn't happen. In May of 1991, about four months after the murder of Dolores Davis, Park City, Kansas hires themselves a new compliance officer to catch stray dogs and to enforce zoning rules. Dennis Lynn Rader now works for the city of his hometown. He is integrating himself even more into his community, making it harder for them to see him as this sadistic serial killer. Dennis is still Dennis. He's still being bossy, still being an anal retentive employee. He, nothing really has changed from his time with ADT to the point that he is hired on as a compliance officer. And it's noted that he never really asked anybody to do anything. He says, you need to do this or you need to do that. He's, he's constantly telling, regardless of his position, he's, he's constantly telling people what to do. Dennis is also noted for never taking any time, not one minute, not one second more than his allotted 15-minute breaks. He has never, he's not described as a person who horses around or jokes around while on the clock. When he's at work, he's focused on work. There's, there's time and place for things when it comes to Dennis and the wit in his, in his ethics. If he's noted for ever talking about anything other than work while on the clock, it's either about Kansas State University's football team or about one of his children. Dennis does eventually work his way into a position where they give him an office. When Dennis is there, his door is open. He has this open door policy. However, you, you're not, you don't come in to shoot the shit. He doesn't want to do that. He, he needs work is work. When he leaves at the end of the day, he shuts his office door and he locks it. His office also has a second door that leads to the outside of the building and this allowed Dennis to come and go without anyone ever noticing his routines or his actions. It's not long after Dennis started his job as the compliant officer that they start to get some complaints about him. Something was creepy about this guy and the way he always asked such detailed questions, especially in regards to single women, about their workday, about their children, about boyfriends. People inside of the community are calling the city, the municipality, and reporting that Dennis is being a little too probing for just a compliant officer. He takes his job very seriously. And it's not, these complaints won't come up against Dennis until later on. Um, at this point, He's just doing his job, and he's a little eccentric. He's a little different, but it's Dennis. We know Dennis from church. Our kids went to school with his kids, you know. He was our scouts leaders for our sons, things like that. These, these oddities about him won't come into question until next week. 
Dennis Rader's secret life needed to stay off the radar of investigators, and so far, luck was on his side. No matter the amount of detective work that went into any of his seven crimes or ten victims, any of the leads that were chased, or any of the list of names that they pulled, Dennis's public life seemed to keep investigators going in the other direction. Dennis had many a moment when he was sure the gig was up, but instead he escaped with only moments to spare. The husband of Vicki Wurgle lived a life that any husband tried to avoid. Had he had been home a bit earlier, could he have stopped Vicki's killer? Had he just looked through their bedroom a little more when he got home, could he have saved her? Dolores Davis's family answered a door to officers who had news no one wanted to hear. She was left alone to the elements and animals alike. She had become a source of food after she was thrown to the side after she provided BTK with what he desired. Both women only served one purpose in BTK's life, a way for him to have sexual gratification. Photos were taken of their bodies in different positions to provide Dennis with an endless supply of spank bank after he was out of time with their bodies. Dennis never imagined that Dolores would be his last. Even if he worked hard to find another, time never allowed for him to have an opportunity to divulge in his sadistic fantasies. Instead, dressing in women's clothing, donning a hideous mask, and tying himself in different positions to help him fantasize about another victim held him over until the monster demanded claim to a victim that hadn't been tied to him until the communication picked back up 13 years after the body of his last victim. And this time, investigators were not going to let him slip past them again. I'd like to thank you all for joining me tonight as we wrap up all of Dennis's murders. Next week, we are going to pick up where his need for recognition will finally bring him down. And the reign of terror that spanned three decades comes to an end. As always, I leave you with one last line. A rat who gnaws at a cat's tail invites destruction. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>